The British Bank Awards are just around the corner. Voting for 2021 is now open, so it's time to have your say and decide who will be crowned a winner at the Oscars of the banking world. 11FS has been nominated for Consultancy of the Year and Pioneer of the Year. If you'd like to vote for us, just head to bit.ly forward slash British Bank Awards 2021. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Kachansky. Welcome to episode 86 of InsureTech Insider. Today we're revisiting small business insurance. So SMB insurance is vital to any small business owner in order to protect the business against foreseeable and unforeseeable liabilities, something that has been well proven in the last few months. As always, I'm not alone. I'm joined today by Nigel Walsh. How are you doing, Nigel? I am fantastic. And as you and I said on Twitter, it's 13 degrees. We have to talk about the weather. It's it's a whole 17 degrees warmer than last time, so I'm happy. <laughs> it, yes, the weather has definitely perked up, and I think a lot of people's moods have perked up with it. So um, it's definite progress. We are joined today by two amazing guests. So first up, we have Raj Varia, Head of Insurance Products at Simply Business. How are you doing today, Raj? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Sarah. Can you tell us a bit more about your role and Simply Business, please? I know you've explained before, but it'd be great if we could have a quick recap more than happy to go through it again. Yes, so Simply Business is an online commercial insurance broker. We do landlord insurance as well. And I head up the new insurance products area alongside my colleagues who head up small business insurance and landlord insurance. And essentially what I'm looking to do is expand the portfolio of products that we have. We've got landlord and commercial at the moment, moving out to things like health insurance, not-for-profit insurance and other ancillary products that sit alongside those products. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Secondly, we are joined today by Brian O'Connell, who is the CEO and co-founder of Huckleberry. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing very well, Sarah. Good to see you. Whereabouts in the world are you? So uh, right now I'm in the northern part of Nevada in a ski town. Uh, So I think it might be a little bit colder than 13 degrees Although uh, I think I've been in the US too long, so I've actually kind of forgotten what 13 degrees Celsius is. (laughs) Are you there to ski or are you there to work? In theory, both. But I think it's it's, in practice, it's actually worked out that I've been working here more than skiing. But it seemed as good a place as any to wait out COVID. Absolutely. Right now, why not? Can you give us a little bit of background on Huckleberry, please? Yeah, for sure. So Huckleberry is an online brokerage with a very simple mission. We want to make the highly painful process of buying small business insurance significantly easier. So take it from a multi-week process to a five-minute end-to-end from the moment you hit our site to checking out with the policy in hand. Most of our customers tend to be Main Street SMBs, so your restaurants, your retail stores with relatively simple product needs. But one of our big initiatives for 2021 is moving towards more high-hazard businesses. So things like cannabis dispensaries, nightclubs, bars, things that are a little bit more difficult to insure. Some interesting businesses there for sure. So, well, brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us today. And thank you to Raj as well. So let's get on with the show. So we have covered SMB insurance before, but let's start with a quick recap on how it works. So first things first, what is SMB insurance? Because it's not just one thing, is it? There's you know lots of different parts that, that, that come into it. Raj, do you want to kick us off by your definition of SMB insurance and perhaps give us a quick overview of some of the things that make it up, You know some of those constituent parts? Yeah, absolutely. So at its core, small business insurance is very much about protecting business risk, particularly looking at sort of micro 
enterprises. And that is just a massively varied group of businesses. So in the UK, we've got actually close to 6 million micro businesses. Small businesses take up about 99% of all business activity in the UK. 75% of that are sole traders, so really just one-man bands. So we we get a big variety in terms of what... um, these businesses require. A lot of the smaller businesses will look for things like the very core public liability. So that's protection if third parties are injured or are taken ill on the premises. And then you'll see other cover types such as professional indemnity if you're providing things like professional advice, tax advice, legal advice. If you've got buildings and property involved, you've got stock cover, tools cover, buildings cover. So depending on the type of business, then there's plenty of complexity that can come into a product. And Brian, does it vary in the US or are the the general principles the same for what constitutes SMB insurance? Is there anything specifically US that perhaps we don't have in Europe or the UK or or vice versa? So I think it's generally quite similar, although how we look at it is we sort of split the market into compliance-based products and non-compliance-based products. So somewhat counterintuitively, a lot of our customers are not buying insurance because they want to protect their business at all. They're buying it because they have to by law or because a landlord or a client is making them do it. So products that fall under that umbrella would be things like workers' compensation. So that's to protect your workers if they're injured on the job. One of the biggest lines in the U.S. and basically required by law in every state except for Texas. Texas is its own special case in many ways. Then you have things like general liability, which you know your landlord may require you to get, but you also might want to get yourself. And then you know you kind of move into things that folks are buying just more for their own protection and peace of mind. So this is like basic stuff like business interruption insurance, property insurance, and then into sort of more complicated lines, like even inland marine, so protecting your stock in transit, etc. Wow, okay. So it's an interesting approach to, to view it slightly differently, but I, d- I do understand what you're saying, kind of stuff you have to have and, and stuff that's almost, you know, a nice to have, or even depending on the perspective of the business and need to have, rather than a regulatory need to have. Nigel? I was going to say, I think we've collectively jumped in as a bunch of insurance professionals or folks that know the market, and we've jumped into language like liability in a heartbeat. And if I played this back to my mum or anyone else, or even a friend of mine that's starting this, you know, one man band, as you mentioned, Raj, as a great example of, you know, 98, 99% of the businesses, what the hell are we talking about? And why do we need to- Go on then, Nigel, explain it. Well, it's more than that, actually. The the point I was going to make was, and I think actually simply do a really good job of this, as do many of others, how do we go about educating people on what they actually need in the first place? Because I think you made the point, Brian, inland marine or whatever else or to do a job you might need a certain certificate or whatever else it might be but if i'm a locksmith that's just come out of something or a wood you know carpenter how do i know i need general liability and at what stage do i know i need to need to get professional liability or cyber so how do we educate people well that takes me into my next question nigel perfect queue up (laughs) the question because we kind of covered that a little bit before in kind of the educational piece but i think the kind of thing we want to look at today because it leads us into how things are changing is about how smb insurance is generally sold and that ties into that broader piece you know is it generally okay i go to a website i go to simply business i say i am a locksmith i pick a button that says locksmith insurance and then i go away with the bundle that you have curated for me or is it more case of I come along and I give you the specifics of my business and you go, yes, you need A, B, C, D, E. Because I think the point is that if you're a larger business, you have people who sit down and help you work this out. If you're a small business, which to Raj, your point is the majority of businesses that we're talking about here, it can be more complicated. So, you know, how 
and I think this is relevant when we start talking about COVID, because people don't know if COVID cover is included, you know, pandemic cover is included, sorry, they don't know if they need it. You know, what is there about the way that it's sold right now? And then perhaps we can talk about, you know, what are the ways it should be sold in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting space. It can be said of a lot of different categories of insurance, really. But if you look at small business insurance, traditionally, you'll see these insurances sold by brokers. So you will have a conversation with somebody who has done a lot of training, is a professional, can provide advice, can talk to you about the details of your business, may actually go out and review your business, may, may go out and actually physically look at the risks that, that are involved in you running your business, and then provide you a tailored policy based on that. But that approach is not suitable for everyone, particularly as we move into a digital age where, you know, a lot of people are wanting a distribution channel that is quick and is easy and simple. And for a lot of small business owners, it needs to be time efficient as well. They don't have the time to have these long convoluted conversations, to Brian's point, wait weeks for an outcome for a policy to be sold and bound and set up. So that's where sort of online distribution often supported by a call center, because often you know people do want to have a conversation about, about something and not necessarily have a, a purely personal touch. That's where that digital process comes into play. And also just picking up on Brian's point, you do have people who know that they need to get some type of insurance because the council says they need to to be able to operate their business or because they have employees and employees liability is is a requirement by law. So um, they'll jump on and they'll do quite a simple journey. But being able to use content as an educational tool to talk through and break down some of these more complex concepts like liability, for example, and what that means and, and how that can actually sort of transpire using use cases and that sort of thing definitely sort of breaks down those concepts for customers who can often act like personal insurance customers. So these one-man bands, for example, they're used to buying their home insurance and their car insurance online. So when they're thinking about their business insurance, that's where they go and they're expecting a similar sort of experience. And, and Brian, how does that apply to you with these more complex and interesting businesses? So you you definitely mentioned something to do with cannabis, unless I misheard that, and that's wishful thinking. Um, <laughs> but what I'm thinking about here is, you know, how do you write policies for that kind of business that's that's new but also small, so it doesn't have the legal team behind it to tell it what it might need? Yeah, so that, so that's an interesting one, which I can definitely talk about. So obviously, the cannabis industry is exploding in the United States right now. So we went from 2,500 dispensaries three years ago to 7,500 now, and you're projected to grow extensively from there. But these guys are very badly served by current options, and they look pretty much like your Main Street SMB in terms of level of sophistication and also just size, number of employees, etc. So the typical process for a cannabis dispensary was to often pay a broker to go out and place coverage for them. So this person is getting commissioned, but you're also paying them an upfront fee. Fill out a completely paper-based application and then actually have a physical inspection done of your premises um, before being able to, to buy and coverage or even get a quote. So what we're doing is it's a little bit different to our, to our Main Street SMB product, which is five minutes end to end. This is more like six months to two days with a lot more tech and a lot fewer PDFs. So significantly better, but you know, still is so much better than the alternative. And then to the point of advice, kind of picking up on Raj's point, like we believe there's always a need for advice in any of these transactions or in most cases. But it's just a case of can you get the consumer to fill out all of their information digitally? Can you make that whole process way more efficient? And then it's maybe 20 minutes of a broker's time at the end 
versus five hours of a broker's time preparing documentation and getting everything ready for a quote. So it's kind of making that broker more efficient as opposed to necessarily eliminating them entirely. Yeah, no, that, that seems fair. And it sounds like there's a, a definite need. I mean, six months to two days, okay, it's not as good as five minutes, but that's that's still progress. Exactly. <laughs> Particularly if you're trying to set up a business. I mean, I'm quite intrigued to hear people's thoughts on talking about setting up businesses. We've seen a lot of people set up businesses in the last year on their own, everything from, you know, making cupcakes or to larger scale because they've been laid off, because they have spare time on their hands, you know, doing doing that thing they, they always want to do. What about for those people? Do you think, first of all, have you seen any increase in sort of requests from people saying, you know, I'm distributing cupcakes every other Saturday and I don't know if I need insurance in case I poison somebody or, you know, whatever else <laughs> cover you might need. I'm just thinking about cupcakes because everybody around here seems to have taken up baking. But, you know, is is that something you've seen, you know, Raj and, and in fact, Brian, you know, through your brokers, is it something you've seen a lot more increase of, of those one-man bands coming to you who are new to business? I don't know, Raj, do you want to go first? Sure. I think we've, we've seen quite a mix, actually. So we've seen some interesting trends. We definitely did, particularly after the first lockdown, um, and we've had a few here, Brian, you, you might be aware. <laughs> we on threes and three or four, I don't we know. We don't believe in them here. <laughs> <laughs> We've decided there is no coronavirus here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. Different, different approach. <laughs> That's another podcast, guys. That's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think we, we had a look at this, particularly after the first lockdown, and we did see a lot of bakeries, like home bakeries, and to your point, Sarah, around cupcakes, uh, a lot of candle-making businesses, a lot of candle-making businesses, um, but then also trends towards sort of online retail. We've seen, definitely seen a lot of smaller businesses who were a lot more sort of physically based moving to switching quite quickly into digital trade instead and then a lot of sort of logistics and delivery courier type trades as well because obviously there was that that big burst in terms of delivery services required as well so yeah definitely some interesting trends that we've seen come out of lockdown and, and quite a few new businesses who have come through our call center to Brian's point in terms of having conversations around what type of insurance would be required. Mm-hmm. And, and Brian, have you seen that as well? Is that, you know, is this, this burst of entrepreneurship similar where you are? Yeah. So we saw a lot of those as well. E-commerce was definitely huge. The one other big one that I guess is not surprising when you look back at it is we saw a massive spike in commercial cleaners uh, post-pandemic. And I think that was driven largely by this compliance needs. So if you have just, you know, your average supermarket is probably 3x the amount of cleaning they're doing, so they're going to outsource that. And if you're a commercial cleaning company, they want to see your certificate of insurance. So not really even to protect themselves, but to be able to comply with the contractual you know, arrangements that they have with that supermarket, they're trying to get insurance as quickly as possible and have an ability to show it to them on, the, on their phone. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense, actually. I hadn't thought about that, but that's very logical. Okay, we're going to move on to talking about business interruption insurance. Now, we've talked about this many times, so we'll just start with a quick recap. Let's not go into much detail. I don't know, Nigel, do you want to give us a quick overview of the BI court case? Because I know... That's the one that's happening here in the UK. I know you've been following that quite closely, Nigel. So do you want to give us a quick overview? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's a BI. It's all about how you protect yourself from interruption of events or things outside of your control. The unknown things specifically, it's a very important term, unknown. Uh, The interruption that was caused by coronavirus fell into a number of categories, very similar in some instances to some cyber events or terrorism events uh, that have equally gone through court. Business interruption, think about your building flooding, it's very straightforward. You can't get to your building because there's been an explosion nearby or whatever else. 
But because policies are worded in very traditional ways, and again, I know simply business have done lots of work in wording recently, publishing some stuff online as well. But because of these traditional wordings, things like business interruption typically required property damage. And when you've got a terrorism or non-denial of access, there is no property damage, you just can't get there. So hence, we ended up in court arguing over wordings. In some cases, they were vague. In some cases, they were unclear. and In some cases, they were just mismatched amongst policies. And the net outcome, of course, as you all know now, is that the, the customers have won. The insurers lost the case, even though it went to the Supreme Court. And are now going through a process and being encouraged to make rapid payouts to get ourselves back on track moving forward into, into the new world. Thank you for that, Nigel. That was very, very succinct and very useful. Before we go into kind of like analysing that, I guess, Brian, has, have we seen much of this in the States? Is there any sort of similar outpouring of, of legal action? I, I wouldn't want to make assumptions based on typical American stereotypes about court cases, but is, is it something that's sort of happening over there? It is. I mean, I'm aware of a few uh, of a few cases, but I'm not aware of anywhere the where the plaintiff has been successful. So um, I guess in contrast to the to the case that you guys are discussing, I think in most cases the claims have been denied over here. Mm, that's really interesting. There are a few actually, and and actually the ones that have been upheld are actually restaurants, and across the U.S. and it differs state to state, obviously, and it differs insurer to insurer, and it even differs in global insurers, country to country. So it's really, it's generally really complex. I mean, there was a case in, uh, I'm going to say Switzerland, where the insurers came out and said, look, we don't think you're covered, but we're going to pay 50%. So we don't end up in court or whatever else it might be. So there's been, it's generally felt like we've tried to do as much as possible. And the, the amount of money we've paid out has been material. I think the net result, one of the other results of the court case in the UK are making sure that whilst we know we need to pay out something, it's arguing certain words like vicinity. So if I asked all four of us to talk about what the word vicinity meant, we might say a mile, 25 miles, whatever else. In the UK court case, they decided at one point vicinity should mean all of the UK. <laughs> right. So, so you can understand why insurers were trying to lock down certain terms just for almost protecting our businesses and being clear going forward. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a place where we price policies that are unaffordable and people don't buy insurance. I mean, that's that's fair. And I, I do take that point. But what about, you know, what do we think about the fact that some insurers are saying they just can't pay? And now, do you think that's, do you think that's true? Or, and, and you know, and if we think it is true, what what do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess in theory, you should have reinsurance to, to cover this, right? So I, I don't think inability to pay is a valid excuse if the, if the policy documents you know, sort of uh, allow for a payout in this event. So I know all of the carriers that we work with have been fairly specific in their forms and generally have called uh, attention to a direct physical loss. So um, we haven't experienced any where they've, where they've had to, where they've sort of been have to, had to pay out even. Interesting. I mean, Raj, what are your thoughts on this case just generally? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting one, but to be honest, I do agree with the ruling and the fact that there was a lot of gray and, and lack of clarity in the wordings and and i think in that in that case it is the right thing to do to err on the side of the client and i think maybe i'm i'm biased because i've worked pretty much in direct insurance my whole life so working with my whole life my whole career definitely not my whole life <laughs> i mean it's i mean maybe you started young if you were, if you were child insurance prodigy i'm not i'm not going to question you what a title child insurance prodigy 
moving on from that. So I think for me, insurance can be vague enough as it is. When the policy terms and the, the wordings aren't clear also, the onus on the customer to be able to interpret what is and isn't covered is quite difficult. I think particularly in terms of the recent FCA case, there was definitely enough gray area in there for, I think, the decision to be the right one. Mm, yeah, no, that's interesting. I think I think a lot of the smaller players or smaller insurtechs, if you like, have, have come out on that side as well. I think perhaps because you, you, you understand the need for clarity of, of you know, policy documents and et cetera, and language and easy to understand language. Nigel, what were you thinking about this? Uh, I was just going to say, the, um, to give you an idea, one of the major carriers came out and said, our number of cases or claims created post the BI case was 3,000 alone. So there's a huge number of upticking claims that were made. Um, the ABI have said they're going to pay out something like two and a half billion in claims as a net result. But interesting, and I think, Brian, you mentioned earlier about brokers and getting involved with SMEs, SMBs. This is, I mean, I think SMB is probably the hottest sector in insurance right now, has been for the last 12 to 18 months, and is likely to be going forward. It feels like the forgotten middle. The challenge I have with this, and the BI case highlights even more, is some of those claims are a net result of brokers with manuscripting and wording in the States or individual wording in the UK. So those cases have arisen as a result of customised wordings. Where does the liability sit? And is this the reason that brokers don't want to get involved with SMEs? Because I'm not going to make enough commission. It's too small a policy with, you know, one man band. And it's got to be a certain case for it to work. I can't spend five hours. It's got to be it's going to be five minutes or, or, or whatever else. So would love your perspective on how, where, where brokers will go post this. Will they pull away from SMB or will they get closer to it? Yeah, so um, hard to say where, where liability sits because I'm not an attorney, but you know, what I would say is um, I, I think there is a responsibility on the behalf of a broker to explain the policy in as much detail as possible so that your customer understands it. That's why there's a licensing regime for these guys, and that's clearly a part of your, your professional duties. So what we try to do is to make it very clear that, look, the majority of these policies will not cover you due to a pandemic-related shutdown and to say that up front, and I think other brokers should also. As to whether this will be a catalyst for them pulling back from the business, I think historically, and a lot of the reason probably why both uh, Raj's company and, and my company are, are excited about the space and about selling directly, is SMBs are not very excited to brokers. If you're selling a $500 to a $2,000 policy and you're making maybe 20% on that, and you have your marketing costs and you have a physical office, it's just very, very difficult to make a buck. So that's kind of why I think they've historically been pulling back. It's why a lot of insurtechs are making broker portals so that the broker can essentially send that leads elsewhere if they if they don't want to service it. So I'm not sure this is necessarily going to be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, but probably doesn't help. What about the SMBs? Just to finish up this section, do you think, you know, it, it sounds like actually there's an uptick in small businesses buying insurance right now. Is that a surprise to you? Because I don't know, I'm just wondering about the attitude and, you know, there'll be some small businesses going, oh my God, we, we need insurance. You know, we can't have this happen again. There'll be a lot of new businesses to both your point, Raj and, and yours, Brian. There'll be others who maybe go, well, what's the bloody point? Do you think it's going to have any impact on on the sort of insurance SMBs buy and in fact whether they whether they bother to look for it in the first place? But we have seen a small rise in, in self-insurance, for example, amongst small businesses. Yeah, but we definitely haven't seen in any data that we've looked at like an overall uptick in small businesses. I think the ones that are more worried about insuring themselves is just 
frankly outweighed by the ones that really don't have the cash to do so. As a business, we've grown pretty strongly through the pandemic, mm-hmm. but that's primarily driven by like a shift towards online channels and the fact that as you know a, a business that's significantly smaller than a multi-billion dollar insurer, you have you know obviously a lot more headroom to, to grow, so you can kind of grow in, in more more difficult environments. Um, but I definitely think that you I mean that there has been sort of a an outweighing of that by the fact that you know some of these businesses are just really hurting. So that's kind of what, what we've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a very fair point, and and I yeah, well, I have I have heard that as well. Now you mention it, but I hadn't thought about it deeply. That you just you just haven't got any money left to pay your insurance. I think I've heard something similar, particularly from a lot of the larger pub mm-hmm. chains in the UK who are who have been really really badly hit. Mirage, I'll just I'll let you close out this section with, with your thoughts on that question. Yeah, uh, it's a really interesting one. So we've seen quite a mix. We've seen some slightly larger small businesses who are actually preferring to engage digitally because they feel like they have been stung by the broker experience because of this. We tend to find sort of smaller businesses, you know, your one-man bands and two, three, four employees aren't necessarily looking for a business interruption policy because they don't necessarily have property. So they don't have a shop, they don't have an office. If they're working from home, you know, they're not looking for that cover type. So they're, they're looking for other covers and they are more risk aware because of this. They, they're more aware of the need for insurance so that they are looking for that. So yeah, it's definitely been quite mixed. And I think we'll see that trend continuing in terms of the type of businesses that, that come looking for products online. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and I think, as you say, it's there's a, there's a sort of a shift in every different way. So you've got more new businesses needing different types of insurance. You've got existing businesses needing different types of insurance. You've got, you know, people who can't afford insurance, people who are desperate for it. I think it's going to be really interesting to see the overall impact on on the industry and, and how the industry reacts. And that's what we are going to be talking about in part two. But before we get to that, we are just going to take a quick break. Okay, on with the show. And now it's over to Nigel. Thank you very much. Next part of the show, we're going to talk about two things. The first of that is pandemic policy. So obviously highly topical as we all hopefully see light at the end of the tunnel. But I guess first question for the team really is, what did existing policies cover? I don't know, uh, Raj, did you want to go first on this in terms of would it have even been seen? Would the word have been mentioned? Where Where do we even start with this? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one. It, it really does depend on the size of the business and the complexity of the coverage you've got if you're even going to look at, you know, pandemic coverage. So, you know, the, definitely the products that we sell to our micro businesses wouldn't mention it. I mean, I think the only time you would really be looking at it is when you're looking at business interruption and we're talking about notifiable diseases. And that's obviously, you know, what has set off the, the FCA case because a lot of these policies did contain that term, a notifiable disease, whereas some policies did list specific illnesses like you know, bubonic plague and you know, foot and mouth disease and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, it went, went with the plague. So yeah, I mean, I think particularly from, if I'm thinking about our customers, the level of sophistication around their coverage levels and thinking about pandemics, the, these businesses are micro. They, they don't even know if they're going to be around for an event that is a one in a hundred year type event. So it's not necessarily one that was resonant to them and a coverage type that they were really thinking about. It's really interesting in, in that it's almost exactly that. You, when you're buying a car or a house or anything that's got options, you go through the list of options and go, what can I get rid of that removes my price and makes it easy to do? And I think in more cases than none, we go back to almost minimum viable product or minimum accessible product to fit customers' needs. And as you say, if it's one in a hundred type of event, we kind of take that sort of stuff out unless we're known for that stuff, which might be hurricane, flood, weather event, 
probably more familiar actually in the US, Brian, right? Where you've got weather or other events that would be more applicable in some states than others, right? Yeah, you you do have those kinds of products over here, but I'm not sure they tend to be that popular because they tend to be very, very expensive. So things like earthquake coverage and, and things of that nature, a lot of folks are are passing on. We did some research into the into the business interruption market, and we found that it was something that, and it's specifically pandemic business interruption insurance. And we found that there was, you know, it was something that was accessible to much larger businesses. So, I mean, I believe Wimbledon had a had a policy to cover the championships. Mm. Probably the only people who did. When we talk about people who actually were covered, Wimbledon was going, "Oh yeah, no, we got it, we're fine." Yeah, and, and, and the closest thing we could find to something off the shelf was, I believe, a program that had a minimum premium of like a hundred thousand dollars. So, obviously, you know, totally inaccessible for for any kind of small business. So, you're saying is price driven more than anything else? Um, well, no, I mean, I think. Honestly, like if you look at it this way, if you had priced a business interruption pandemic product a year ago, it wouldn't have been priced like an earthquake product, right? Because earthquakes are very common. I've probably had like five of them since I've been here, right? These are once in a generation events. So it, you know, it wouldn't have been very expensive if you tried to price this two years ago. Honestly, it was probably more like, well, number one, to your point, will someone really want to pay that extra 15, 30 bucks? Like for something that's very, very unlikely to happen? Probably not. And also probably just the fact that you know, it wasn't something to occur to a lot of people as would be attractive to small businesses. So it wasn't really developed. Yeah, I, I am with you there. And I think actually, Raj, you mentioned notifiable diseases, which is really interesting because, yeah. again, probably a term that not many had seen or heard and probably never even read the policy. And Sarah and I have talked about this enough times where people just don't read this sort of stuff. The last real change for me probably was around about SARS when the outbreak of that was, what, 20 years ago and we got wordings tightened up how have policies changed since then? Have you got much view on what you've done as a net result of the now known event that is the pandemic? I mean, we definitely did see insurers come in and tighten up their wording following the outbreak of COVID, explicitly excluding it or explicitly listing out the diseases that they would cover. So yeah, definitely insurers have gone back to look at their wordings and, and exclude COVID. And I think, uh, you know, to, to Brian's point around affordability, um, it is about that. I mean, it is, it's insurance is very much about pricing for, you know, the unknown, the risks that we, we, we don't know are, go, are going to, to come completely random. And I think, you know, the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic now, and I think everybody needs to go back and take stock of, you know, is this going to happen again? What does the world look like in a world where, you know, novel coronaviruses appear on an annual basis. I mean, SARS was 20 years ago. Could that have been a pandemic? Could that have been the same sort of extent that we have now? So I think it'll be a a long while before insurers revisit that wording to treat pandemics in in any way other than, you know, quite quite tightly. I was going to say, Brian, didn't you launch a a specific pandemic business insurance product? Like, wasn't that something that you've actually done? It's it's specifically for this. So we're launching it later this year. So we hope to get it out in in mid-summer. It's an excess and surplus product, so so not admitted, so it's so more bespoke. And how we're setting it up is based on a government-mandated shutdown or reduction in services in your locality. So very clear and un- unambiguous triggers for, for what's going to trigger a payout with a, with a short waiting period, and also price based on local infection rates within your locality. So something that's very I mean, very complicated to, to get up and running. Probably will have limited take-up this year, if we're, if we're honest, but... I think it's something we'd like to have in our repertoire for, for longer term because you know, it will be sort of more expensive this year. But to Raj's point, this is probably not going to be the last pandemic. And whereas two years ago, 
a small business would probably have said, okay, I'm not paying that extra. I'm not paying 30 bucks even for, for pandemic insurance. Two years from now, it's probably going to be a very different story. And we actually think it could be a smart way of getting folks in the door and then getting them interested in us as having you know, some unique level of, of product offering. That's really interesting, Brian. Can I ask, is that parametric? So will you automatically pay out based on the event occurring? Correct. Yeah, exactly. We love a bit of parametric. I was just about to ask Sarah, I think this is the exact <laughs> right spot for if this, then that, you know, it's automatically going to go pay out. The, the other thing here that I find really interesting is, and I know I go on about it, and I'm really sorry, but, but education, because everyone's been through this event, unlike a hurricane or earthquake where it's usually localised or whatever else, but everyone's been through it. We will be here in 50 years' time, A, talking about education, but B, going, do you remember 2020 when we all had to hunker down or whatever else? And actually the fact that everyone's gone through it does mean we're all now going to think about it. You know, go back five years... Sarah or I wouldn't have thought twice about checking our travel insurance, whether a pandemic is covered. And now it's going to be the top two or three things of things that we, we do before we go and book our next trip to Europe or New Zealand or wherever else it might be. Yeah, I mean, I think the point is that, that people's approach to insurance will probably change. I think that's what we're talking about here generally, right? Like people are thinking about insurance in a different way and people are acting in a different way, as mentioned in the first half. So insurers have to respond to that. And I think the point is that, you know, when the pandemic has slowed so much business or changed so much business, you know, how small businesses function has changed fundamentally in a lot of cases, insurers are going to, to have to respond to the different demands for customers. And I think if anything, my hope is that, and I said this before as well, that this is a, a real, you know, jump start for the insurance industry. Like they were dragging their heels about being more customer centric and, and, and responsive in ways that perhaps the banking industry has, has got slightly further ahead with. I wouldn't say it's winning, but, you know, slightly further ahead with. Have you seen that? Is that your hope? Or am I being too optimistic that the insurance industry respond to a change set of circumstances? So, I think it's a valid point about there potentially being more consumer demands, but kind of to my earlier point, I think we're going to have to wait a little bit to find that out, right? Because there's just going to be a lack of cash flow in all of these businesses for the next while. So even if they think that insurance is now very, very important and going towards top of my list, probably won't have the cash for a little bit until until the economy really starts to recover to make what you know, might be seen as a more kind of discretionary purchase. I think there's definitely also an, an opportunity for for I guess anyone not tarnished with you know some of the lawsuits or, or some of the negative publicity to sort of build a product. So I think that's going to be the big challenge. If you're coming in and trying to say, well, we're going to protect you, there's a lot of negative media out there around you know these denied claims over the last year. So I think that's going to be the sort of you know aside from every other UX challenge and all the other challenges that this industry have, that's going to be something that they're they're really going to be up against. I suppose one optimistic point there would be, well, it will take businesses as well to work out how they operate in future and what their needs are. So that gives the insurance industry time. Come on, guys, start now. You might be ready. Yep. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, I mean, you're absolutely right. The onus is on us to start trying to predict what those future trends are, are going to be and what is happening now that will actually sustain into the future. So, you know, a lot more potential working from home, particularly for, you know, businesses that previously had an office, does that change risk? Do policies need to change to, to take into account that sort of behaviour? Sarah, you mentioned before, sort of the rise of sort of gig economy and more sort of flexible working styles and patterns and then what that means for insurance products to, to cater for those needs. But I think to Brian's point around the trust piece, I think, you know, the industry has 
suffered a bit of a loss of trust off the back of how they've responded to, to some of this. And I feel like it's going to be really important that we work on transparency, that we work on the way that we communicate with customers, that we work on customer-centric products and design and education pieces to be able to surmount that that barrier of trust and, and ensure that we can get our products to customers and make them relevant. It's funny you mentioned the word trust and, and obviously insurance is, a, is in essence a trust business and bringing you back to pre-loss conditions and all that sort of good stuff. We did a survey mid-pandemic about whether trust in SME insurance specifically is changed pre and post-pandemic. It's all public, it's online. And you can read the answer two ways. Trust in insurers didn't change, which you could say, oh, that's really good. Or you could say they didn't trust us in the first place whatsoever. And I'm, I'm going to go with the latter one, unfortunately, because I think that's probably closer to reality. We've kind of strayed into our next section, really, on the future of small to medium business insurance. Before we get there, though, I mean, we, we have touched on affordability quite a bit. Brian, you mentioned reinsurance about, you know, not affording to be able to pay claims. In the, in the future, do you think the business model of insurance has to change where we're either going to change the relationship between primary insurer, broker, agent and reinsurer so that we push more risk to a reinsurer, for example, to keep it affordable? Or do we need the step in of government like we have in the UK with, you know, flood re or talk of cyber re or pandemic re? How, how, do you, how do you foresee the industry as a whole getting together, not just pushing it down to the uh, end person to go sell it and customer to afford it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, any talk of the demise of primary carriers is, is probably uh, maybe a little premature. We still have in, in the US, you know, something like 20 or 30 companies in the in the Fortune 500 that are, you know, billions in revenue and all 20% EBITDA, you know, so these are fundamentally, you know, highly, highly profitable businesses. And, you know, I don't see that changing anytime soon. The part of the model that I guess we think will be compressed a little bit more is is the the broker commission percentage. Um, I think it's gonna. I think the industry is gonna go a lot more direct and a lot more broker augmented as opposed to to broker first. Then you, know, I think, as you as you rightly say, there's always some role for governments in these more like disaster driven products. And we see that with terrorism insurance. We see that in various forms of federal flood insurances that we have in the U.S. So I think that will continue to exist and and you know, frankly could be something to think about from a pandemic point of view what do you think raj do you think customers will change what they ask for coming forward or, or or are they going to be pretty much the same as we have now i can't say that they would necessarily change what they ask for in terms of the fundamentals i feel like it's more of an ask around that clarity around what actually is going to be delivered in the event of a claim event. And I think there needs to be more transparency also around how insurers, reinsurers and government work in some of these more edge case scenarios, these catastrophe events in terms of how they work together and to work to protect the customer. Because otherwise, unfortunately, it's it's it, that is where sort of the customer ends up slipping through the cracks. Yeah, I do worry about that. And I do think schemes like Flood Re have been quite successful at almost mitigating the issue by spreading the load, which is the whole purpose of insurance in the first place in, in reality, but making it affordable for all, we just got to keep that fair and reasonable in the same way that we do for fraud or non-insured drivers with the MIB and other things like that. I guess we move on to the next big crisis. Maybe Sarah, you're always very good at coming up with doomsday scenarios and, and, and everything else. Where, where do we go with this? Where, you know, how do we even start to predict the future? Because this is, you go back to the WEF report. So the World Economic Forum report about the top 10 issues 
pandemic risk has been on that list for God knows how many years, as has cyber, as has, you know, lack of clean water. What's your take on the next big crisis, I guess, or how we can start to prepare for this across the whole financial services and insurance systems? I don't think I'm good at coming up with doomsday scenarios. I think I'm an analyst by trade, which means I look at the data um, and work out what the data is telling me and then go, guys, we really we really should look at that. That's really something I really think we should look at that. I think, you know, one of the things that we, we've touched on, you know, a couple of times a day is that this is not our last pandemic. You know, this particular pandemic they reckon is going to rumble on for 10 years because yeah. virus is very good at mutating. Sorry, Brian, you sighed at me. I, look, it's not me. It's the data. If I'm wrong, I'm very happy to be wrong. But even if it isn't this one rumbling on for 10 years. There probably will be another one. Pandemics are becoming more and more serious, you know, exacerbated by other things that are happening. You know, climate change is one big doomsday scenario. Sorry, Nigel, but it really is. You're going to be hard pressed to, to put positive light on that. Um, you know, a lot of the data coming out uh, in the last week or so about the impact of climate change, particularly on continents like Africa, you know, that just, if you want to talk about coverage or insurance, it just, it just doesn't exist across huge swathes of that continent. So I think in terms of preparing, we just have to be sensible and look at what we are being shown. Like a lot of what's happened, as you say, Nigel, you're very right. These things have been on those lists for 10 years, but people have ignored them. Now, partly that's, I think, willful ignorance. Sorry, willful ignorance is a tautology. Partly that's ignorance. Um, but partly it's also, I think, people not being able to respond quickly enough. And I think if anything, I go back to my earlier point that there will be something big that we can't see coming. We have to work out how to respond to that. We have to work out how to be resilient when we don't know what's coming around the corner. You know, and we won't be able to perf perfectly respond to everything, but we have a lot more technology available to us now. We should be more agile. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep banding that blinking word around. You know, we should be able to be more agile and more responsive. And I think that's really where where brands and, and companies should be focusing is, OK, how do we make sure that we are, we yeah. can be that way? And even if it's not necessarily responsive in terms of products, start being responsive to your customers. Start there, you know. I think you've absolutely nailed that, to be fair, because if it was going to be one issue out there, you know, even with COP26 being held in the UK, the US rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. Insurers have a massive responsibility and opportunity here more broadly. And I know it's it's almost in the news every day where, you know, large insurers like AXA XL and Lloyds of London are all pulling out of um, dirty energy or, or fossil fuels and stuff like that. It does, does it affect large insurers only or does it work all the way down to individual you know, one man bands, Raj, to your comment earlier, do we care as much? Should they care as much? Or, or are we lagging bigger carriers, reinsurers that can have a bigger impact early on? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, you you mentioned that some of those larger insurers pulling out of some of those industries. And I think, you know, it's funny, insurance is a risk prevention industry, but a lot of what we're looking at now in terms of products even is is about preventing risk in our customer base. If you look at, you know, the way the life and health industry are going in terms of creating a healthier society to reduce claims, to reduce risk in that way and incentivize society to take those preventative measures, there's no reason why we can't see the same thing happening in other parts of the industry, be that cyber risk, be that climate risk, depending on where, you know, you know, what risks we're willing to ensure, what companies we're willing to ensure, we can, I mean, I think the industry can definitely make positive changes. No, I think this one's going to be talked about for a very long time. I won't go on about it now. I'm sure Sarah and I will have a show about it in the not too distant future with so much going on. There's a whole debate about whether insurers have a moral stand or not, like lemonade, not insuring guns and all that sort of good stuff. 
I'll pause there. Sarah, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Nigel. I think, you know, this is, this is the, as you say, the starting point of, of many more conversations. And I think a lot's come out today that, you know, we will, these are threads we will be pulling for a while. That does wrap up today's discussion, though. Thank you so much to my guests. Where can our listeners find out more about you, Raj? Do you have a, a Twitter handle or a website or a LinkedIn you'd like to share? Yes, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at Rajashrivarya. And my Twitter handle is Raji underscore warrior. Oh, I like that. Brian, how about you? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I am LinkedIn, uh, Brian O'Connell one. And then you can find me on Twitter as the Irish VC, which is a throwback to one of my former jobs, former lives. <laughs> Equally good. Got some great Twitter handles today. <laughs> Nigel, how about you? Less great Twitter handle. I'm now embarrassed. I'm just Nigel Walsh on Twitter. And if anyone tries and tells me that e-scooter is climate friendly, I'm going to go ballistic. But you have been warned. I'm equally dull. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. And you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders or our 11FS LinkedIn page. That is 11 colon FS. If you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, which you can find on Spotify and all your other podcast providers. And do remember to leave us a review. It does help to make the podcast better. We will be back very soon. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.